Hi everyone, I'm JJ Hornblass and welcome to the Roadmap from Auto Finance News since 1996, the nation's leading newsletter on automotive lending and leasing. This is our weekly wrap for what's happening in auto finance for the week of September 21, 2020. Uh, before we get started, I want to thank Auto Finance News advertisers Alpha, DeFi, FIS, Pay Near Me, and Remitter for their continuing support. Thank you to them very much. And I am uh, so pleased to be joined by Joey Pizzolatto, the deputy editor of Auto Finance News, and Amanda Harris, who is uh, the associate editor of Auto Finance News. Welcome to both of you. It is Friday, September 25th, 2020. This week uh, we was marked by the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, we also saw fascinating data from the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz uh, that showed, among, among other many other things, uh, that demand for used golf balls went through the roof during the pandemic. The September Kansas City uh, Fed Composite Index came out this week, which showed it was uh, 11 points higher for August, which implies a greater expansion of factory, regional factory activity in September. Um, we also saw this week a, the announcement of the $16.1 billion reverse merger of United Wholesale Mortgage. That'll be the largest SPAC deal on record. And finally, uh, news this morning that the September new vehicle sales forecast uh, is expected to show a year-over-year -year decline of 12.12%, 12 while used vehicle sales will show a, a growth rate of 11% year-over-year -year for September. So now on to auto finance. Uh, the most notable story, I think, this week was uh, really a, a, a deeper analysis by our colleague Marcy Bellis uh, on the Credit Acceptance Corp lawsuit that was filed by uh, the Attorney General of Massachusetts uh, just at the tail end of August um, and what that implies for uh, enforcement, regulatory compliance, uh, as it relates to subprime lenders uh, nationwide. Um, uh, maybe, Joe, you want to give us a little bit more background on, on some of the conclusions that she came to before we get into a bit of a discussion on this. Yeah, absolutely. So at the heart of the, this lawsuit is um, consumers' ability to repay. And, and really what this, this says is regulators look at a pool of loans, say subprime loans, for example, and they, they measure the default rate on, for that population. And if the default rate is higher than they, whatever their benchmark is, their assumption is that loans should not have been made to that specific consumer. So the, the Massachusetts AG in particular is targeting subprime lenders with higher default rates, specifically CAC, um, it is, it is um, 
settled with buy rider, buy here, pay here lender, um, also Santander consumer, and and really, you know, um, kind of this this whole um, you know ability to repay was really born out of um, the credit crisis and subprime mortgages and, and the extremely um, high default rate that, that we saw that led to the financial collapse. And, and after that, um, regulators really started putting more of a, of a focus on um, the ability to repay. So what, what would be the lender argument against this enforcement tact? Well, it's, it's actually really interesting that Marcy decided to do a deep dive into this this week because I spoke to um, a couple lawyers in, about this in regards to kind of, um, you know, inclusive um, financial inclusion, excuse me. Um, and, and really, you know, it, 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 it prevents a lot of lenders from, from serving underserved communities and, you know, um, you know, consumers with lackluster credit or no credit. Um, and furthermore, uh, you know, there are some regulations such as um, interest rate caps that are designed to protect the consumer that actually keep the, that same consumer out of the market. So for example, um, if I'm a consumer in a state that has a loan rate of 18%, but it's only financially feasible for a lender to lend to me at a higher rate because obviously lenders have to price and risk. Um, servicing for um, some prime borrowers is, is um, kind of by, on an industry standard, more expensive. Um, lenders are unable to do that, which, which, is, which poses a problem. Yeah, I mean, we, we, there, there have been arguments around suitability or the demands uh, uh, on financial institutions to gauge suitability. This is across multiple financial products. And, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm assuming that there's precedence for this. But, you know, you look at a circumstance like we're in right now. And you look at default rates as it relates to what's going on right now. And, you know, to, you, know you can very easily argue from a, an enforcement standpoint that, well, those borrowers were, you didn't, you didn't have the proper, you know, means test to determine suitability for those, par those borrowers. But yet you're, you're in, the, in the midst of a, you know, a hundred year episode a once in a hundred year episode. And so I understand that they're gonna take, you know, they're gonna sort of try to uh, gauge this over a, a greater duration of time. But uh, look, th this is a, this ends up being a political thing where, uh, you know, there is the, the notion that the, who is the onus on? Who is the onus of evaluation or determination on? Is the onus on the customer or the consumer or is the onus on the lender? Uh, I mean, we're not, you know, clearly if there's systemic abusive practices, um, you know, that's problematic. Um, but the suitability is like a, there's like, there's no end to that potentially. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because it, th there are two schools of thoughts, right? Like there's the one, as you mentioned, where the onus is, is on the lender to, to know yeah. whether or not, you know, somebody has the ability to repay. But, you know, there is a, also a large school of thought that says the consumer knows what's best for them. They know that if they can afford a loan, 
um, especially in, in the subprime space. Subprime consumers are resilient, um, just just by characteristic um, of of their kind of um, you know stance in the credit segment. So so it's really kind of up to the regulator. And like you said, Massachusetts, they're a big player um, in taking enforcement action, and yeah. that is a very political office. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was interesting that, uh, you know, that this CAC case in Maryland got uh, 40 attorneys general to kind of sign on to it. Um, so, you know, this is clearly, I mean, you know, look, these, this is what happens in regulatory enforcement. You have you have circumstances where, you know, the, the AGs see that there's like an opportunity out there and then they all jump on the bandwagon, um, which I think at the end of the day is actually not necessarily always beneficial for the consumer and certainly is going to make for some tougher times for lenders. Um, I mean, the other, we also saw a, um, a, a settlement at the CFPB level this week with Lobel Financial, but that seemed like a more straightforward uh, situation. I think, uh, you know, this, like what, what happened there, Amanda? Why, why was Lobel forced to pay, was I think $1.3 million, a $1.3 million penalty? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, this one, like you said, is a little bit more straightforward. Um, so really to, to kind of talk on a high level and and the gist of, of the whole thing was that they were promising a certain service for consumers paying for this waiver, um, and then they weren't following through. So to kind of get a little more information, they have this, um, you know, loss damage waiver that they put on borrowers' accounts. It's not really insurance, but it basically acts as protection against vehicle damage, um, and they kind of do that when a borrower has a borrower has insufficient insurance, and they use that kind of instead of collateral protection insurance. Uh, so what they would do is they would charge um, like a premium for basically a, a placing that waiver. And then what it was supposed to do is that then those consumers, if they did have vehicle damage or even a total loss of the vehicle, could file a claim and get that um, you know reimbursed to them. Well, the problem was apparently since I think it was about 2012 um, that it, this goes back to, many of those consumers who were paying for the waiver um, weren't actually getting their claims, um, you know, looked at. They weren't they weren't addressing those claims, so they weren't actually you know paying for the damage to the vehicles. They weren't basically they weren't following through with what the waiver actually said it was supposed to be doing. So that was one issue, um, which obviously is is pretty clear cut as a an unfair practice because they weren't doing what the customer is actually paying for them to do. Um, so that was basically the main gist of it. Some of the other issues that came out of it was, you know, they also had a stipulation in there if, if borrowers were um, 10 days or more delinquent, then the waiver could come off and they would no longer be applying that or, um, and that meant that the borrowers should, not, should no longer have to be paying for that because they would no longer be getting the service. But Again, since 2012, a lot of them were actually still paying for that, but their claims were still being denied. So it was kind of a twofold of not providing the service you said, and then not meeting the requirements for removing the waiver and removing that extra, um, you know, payment on top of what they were doing um, at the same time. So it was kind it of 
those two major things. Is there a sense, Amanda, that this is this is perhaps happening at other lenders beyond Lobel, or is this was this more restricted just to Lobel? This seemed like it was more restricted to this particular lender as far as this actual, um, you know, what was happening with this waiver. But it does speak to, you know, just kind of a, a warning in the industry of obviously you want to make sure that you're, you know, providing what you said you're going to provide and, you know, make sure that the paperwork that goes to consumers, what they're signing, they know what they're getting, and then that's actually being followed through on. Um, so that was kind of like the main thing. And, and it was, again, pretty clear cut. Um, you know, that this is obviously not something that you should be doing. And it, and it could just been that there was some mistake that this has been missed, you know, for many years. Um, you know, we, we just don't really know how this kind of happened, but obviously it somehow got under the radar and, and has been missed since 2012 that this was going on. Um, so I think it just speaks to being careful. Yeah, um, we, we saw some data this week that came out on kind of the flip side of this issue, which is uh, consumer fraud. Um, you know, in the case of Lobel, perhaps they weren't um, doing what they were supposed to, but here it's on the, on the consumer side. Um, the numbers on syn synthetic fraud and auto finance are, uh, I think, significant. 22% um, of all false identity fraud uh, fraud uh, episodes are in lending. In lending are, are connected to auto loans. Uh, why? Why is this so pervasive in the auto lending space? Yeah. So this data come from a came from a subset of about fourteen hundred synthetic identities that were being looked at, and they found you know that most of those, when connected with an auto loan they were basically setting up these fake identities using uh, social security numbers, data births, and the name. And the big issue for the auto finance world is a lot of this is done, actually the majority, like 96% of this is done, where they're basically using an applicant's name and date of birth actually refer to a real person. So that's gonna match obviously what's on the driver's license because it is their name and their date of birth. But they're using a social security number that is not theirs. Well, obviously your driver's license don't list your social security number. So right then and there, that's just a really obviously open area that can be missed when you're doing a credit application because you're verifying it with the driver's license. Well, what's on the driver's license is the real information. And so because the majority of this synthetic fraud is happening that way, where it's, it's called like first party, where they're using that particular uh, information and using just a, a made up or somebody else's social security number, that's really where that gap is forming because of the way they're verifying right now for a credit application. So really to kind of be proactive in that, you really have to also verify that they're using a social security number that is theirs or else you're gonna you know, possibly pull the wrong credit report, which could lead you know, to problems on the portfolio later on, higher charge-offs, and then it's kind of looking like it's a credit issue and really it's, you know, it's fraud that's happening behind the scenes. Uh, so that's really why this is such a big deal is because most of them are done that way. Um, it's harder to catch. So. Is, there, is there a way to, you know, an, is there technology to solve this problem? 
I think the main thing is, you know, lenders just need to be more aware that this is going on. And with COVID, you know, it kind of really pushed a lot more with technology and remote processes, which makes this even easier because they can obviously have things just mailed to an address. You're doing it all online. It, it just makes it a lot easier to commit these kind of synthetic frauds and create these identities and use that data. So I think just being more aware of it for one. Um, and then you can work with companies that, you know, where this data came from, for example, you can work with those kind of companies that kind of detect that for you um, and look for synthetic identities. And just, you know, just seeing the red flags and really verifying the social security number as well, instead of just kind of going the normal route with the name and the, and the date of birth. Just to tack on to that, um, you know, we had Todd Wolf on our Auto Finance Risk Summit this summer, and he, he spoke specifically about fraud in auto finance. And, you know, the Auto Finance Coalition, they are a consortium of, you know, a lot of auto lenders that get together and really sharing data. Um, they say, uh, you know, sharing data, talking it out. A lot of these fraud rings, they operate kind of on a mass scale. It's not just really like a, a one-off, you know, Joey Pizzolatto is, you know, going to take you for, you know, $30,000 for this used car that he doesn't really want. No, I mean, this is like, this fraud is being conducted on a massive scale. And if you share information, you find, you know, social security numbers that are used over and over again, you can find addresses that, um, that are used specifically to perpetuate this fraud. And, and through that, you know, sharing of data between lenders, they can really kind of start to pick out the pockets where, where this fraud, um, you know, lives. So I guess if anyone wants to get in touch with the coalition, we can help them with that. <laughs> I'm sure we can. <laughs> All right, Joey, what do we have going on next week? Next week, um, next week we are excited, incredibly excited to release our diversity and inclusion issue. Um, obviously it is a highly important topic. We talk to a lot of auto lenders, um, a lot of lawyers. We talk to a lot of people to really get a sense of, you know, where diversity and inclusion is um, in auto finance. Um, you know, I'm happy to say that, you know, the auto finance industry has made great strides, but like any worthwhile endeavor, there's still a lot of work to be done. And, you know, the, the executives we talk to have some really great advice on, on what auto lenders can, can continue to do to mm -hmm. further those efforts. So, um, you know, that's going to be our number one um, story next week. Great. Uh, we are now uh, within a month of the Auto Finance Summit, uh, which is October 20 to 22. Um, we are making complimentary registrations available for lenders, and you can get that. Uh, you can get that complimentary registration by going to autofinancesummit.com and registering at a lender if you're a lender. Um, so please do that. And don't forget to uh, visit us at autofinancenews.net. Um, thank you all so much for joining us on the roadmap. Uh, we'll see you next time and see you online uh, as well. Thanks, everyone.